Section 6 of Signs of Change by William Morris. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Deborah Brabin. The Hopes of Civilization, Part 2. However, civilization was not going to stop there. Having turned the man into a machine, the next stage for commerce to aim at was to contrive machines which would widely dispense with human labor. Nor was this aim altogether disappointed. Now, at first sight, it would seem that, having got the workman into such a plight as he was, as the slave of division of labor, this new invention of machines, which should free him from a part of his labor at least, could be nothing to him but an unmixed blessing. Doubtless it will prove to have been so in the end, when certain institutions have been swept away which most people now look on as eternal. But a longish time has passed during which the workman's hopes of civilization have been disappointed. For those who invented the machines, or rather who profited by their invention, did not aim at the saving of labour, in the sense of reducing the labour which each man had to do, but, first taking it for granted that every workman would have to work as long as he could stand up to it, aimed, under those conditions of labour, at producing the utmost possible amount of goods which they could sell at a profit. Need I dwell on the fact that, under these circumstances, the invention of the machines has benefited the workman but little, even to this day. Nay, at first they made his position worse than it had been. For being thrust on the world very suddenly, they distinctly brought about an industrial revolution, changing everything suddenly and completely. Industrial productiveness was increased prodigiously, but so far from the workers reaping the benefit of this, they were thrown out of work in enormous numbers, while those who were still employed were reduced from the position of skilled artisans to that of unskilled labourers. The aims of their masters being, as I said, to make a profit, they did not trouble themselves about this as a class, but took it for granted that it was something that couldn't be helped and didn't hurt them. Nor did they think of offering to the workers that compensation for harassed interests which they have since made a point of claiming so loudly for themselves. This was the state of things which followed on the conclusion of European peace, and even that peace itself rather made matters worse than better, by the sudden cessation of all war industries and the throwing onto the market many thousands of soldiers and sailors. In short, at no period of English history was the condition of the workers worse than in the early years of the nineteenth century. There seemed during this period to have been two currents of hope that had reference to the working classes. The first affected the masters, the second the men. In England, and in what I am saying of this period I am chiefly thinking of England, the hopes of the richer classes ran high, and no wonder. For England had by this time become the mistress of the markets of the world, and also, as the people of that period were never weary of boasting, the workshop of the world. The increase in the riches of the country was enormous, even at the early period I am thinking of now, prior to forty-eight, I mean, though it increased much more speedily in times that we have all seen. But part of the jubilant hopes of this newly rich man concerned his servants, the instruments of his fortune. It was hoped that the population in general would grow wiser, better educated, thriftier, more industrious, more comfortable. For which hope there was surely some foundation, since man's mastery over the forces of nature was growing yearly towards completion. But you see, these benevolent gentlemen supposed that these hopes would be realised, perhaps by some unexplained magic as aforesaid, or perhaps by the working classes, at their own expense, by the exercise of virtues supposed to be specially suited to their condition, and called by their masters thrift and industry. For this latter supposition there was no foundation. 
Indeed, the poor wretches who were thrown out of work by the triumphant march of commerce had perforce worn thrift threadbare, and could hardly better their exploits in that direction. While as to those who worked in the factories, or who formed the fringe of labour elsewhere, industry was no new gospel to them, since they already worked as long as they could work without dying at the loom, the spindle, or the stithy. They for their part had their hopes, vague enough as to their ultimate aim, but expressed in the passing day by a very obvious tendency to revolt. This tendency took various forms, which I cannot dwell on here, but settled down at last into chartism about which I must speak a few words. But first I must mention, I can scarce do more, the honoured name of Robert Owen, as representative of the nobler hopes of his day, just as more was of his, and the lifter of the torch of socialism, amidst the dark days of the confusion consequent on the reckless greed of the early period of the great factory industries. That the conditions under which man lived could affect his life and his deeds infinitely. That not selfish greed and ceaseless contention, but brotherhood and cooperation were the bases of true society, was the gospel which he preached and also practised, with a single-heartedness, devotion and fervour of hope which have never been surpassed. He was the embodied hope of the days when the advance of knowledge and the sufferings of the people thrust revolutionary hope upon those thinkers who were not in some form or other in the pay of the sordid masters of society. As to the Chartist agitation, there is this to be said of it, that it was thoroughly a working-class movement, and it was caused by the simplest and most powerful of all causes, hunger. It is noteworthy that it was strongest, especially in its earlier days, in the northern and midland manufacturing districts, that is, in the places which felt the distress caused by the Industrial Revolution most sorely and directly. It sprang up with particular vigour in the years immediately following the Great Reform Bill, and it has been remarked that disappointment of the hopes which that measure had cherished had something to do with its bitterness. As it went on, Obvious causes for failure were developed in it. Self-seeking leadership, futile discussion of the means of making the change before organisation of the party was perfected, blind fear of ultimate consequences on the part of some, blind disregard to immediate consequences on the part of others. These were the surface reasons for its failure. But it would have triumphed over all these and accomplished revolution in England if it had not been for causes deeper and more vital than these. Chartism differed from mere radicalism in being a class movement, but its aim was, after all, political rather than social. The socialism of Robert Owen fell short of its object, because it did not understand that, as long as there is a privileged class in possession of the executive power, they will take good care that their economical position, which enables them to live on the unpaid labour of the people, is not tampered with. The hopes of the Chartists were disappointed because they did not understand that true political freedom is impossible to people who are economically enslaved. There is no first and second in these matters, the two must go hand in hand together. We cannot live as we will, and as we should, as long as we allow people to govern us whose interest it is that we should live as they will, and by no means as we should. Neither is it any use claiming the right to manage our own business unless we are prepared to have some business of our own. These two aims united mean the furthering of the class struggle till all classes are abolished. The divorce of one from the other is fatal to any hope of social advancement. Chartism, therefore, though a genuine popular movement, was incomplete in its aims and knowledge. 
The time was not yet come, and it could not triumph openly. But it would be a mistake to say that it failed utterly. At least it kept alive the holy flame of discontent. It made it possible for us to attain to the political goal of democracy, and thereby to advance the cause of the people by the gain of a stage from whence could be seen the fresh gain to be aimed at. I have said that the time for revolution had not then come. The great wave of commercial success went on swelling, and though the capitalists would, if they had dared, have engrossed the whole of the advantages thereby gained at the expense of their wage-slaves, the Chartist revolt warned them that it was not safe to attempt it. They were forced to try to allay discontent by palliative measures. They had to allow factory acts to be passed, regulating the hours and conditions of labour of women and children, and consequently of men also in some of the more important and consolidated industries. They were forced to repeal the ferocious laws against combination among the workmen, so that the trades unions won for themselves a legal position and became a power in the labour question, and were able, by means of strikes and threats of strikes, to regulate the wages granted to the workers, and to raise the standard of livelihood for a certain part of the skilled workmen and the labourers associated with them, though the main part of the unskilled, including the agricultural workmen, were no better off than before. Thus was damped down the flame of a discontent vague in its aims and passionately crying out for what, if granted, it could not have used. Twenty years ago, anyone hinting at the possibility of serious class discontent in this country would have been looked upon as a madman. In fact, the well-to-do and cultivated were quite unconscious, as many still are, that there was any class distinction in this country, other than what was made by the rags and caste clothes of feudalism, which in a perfunctory manner they still attacked. There was no sign of revolutionary feeling in England twenty years ago, the middle class were so rich that they had no need to hope for anything but a heaven which they did not believe in. The well-to-do working men did not hope since they were not pinched and had no means of learning their degraded position. And lastly, the drudges of the proletariat had such hope as charity, the hospital, the workhouse and kind death at last could offer them. In this stocked-uppers heaven, let us leave our dear countrymen for a little while I say a few words about the affairs of the people on the continent of Europe. Things were not quite so smooth for the fleecer there. Socialist thinkers and writers had arisen, about the same time as Robert Owen. Saint-Simon, Proudhon, Fourier and his followers kept up the traditions of hope in the midst of a bourgeois world. Amongst these, Fourier is the one that calls for most attention since his doctrine of the necessity and possibility of making labour attractive is one which socialism can by no means do without. France also kept up the revolutionary and insurrectionary tradition, the result of something like hope still fermenting amongst the proletariat. She fell at last into the clutches of a second Caesarism, developed by the basest set of sharpest swindlers and harlots that ever insulted a country, and of whom our own happy bourgeois at home made heroes and heroines, the hideous open corruption of Parisian society to which, I repeat, our respectable classes accorded heartfelt sympathy, was finally swept away by the horrors of a race war. The defeats and disgraces of this war developed on the one hand an increase in the wooden implacability and baseness of the French bourgeois, but on the other made way for revolutionary hope to spring again, from which resulted the attempt to establish society on the basis of the freedom of labour, which we call the Commune of Paris of 1871. 
whatever mistakes or imprudences were made in this attempt, and all was blossom thick with such mistakes, I will leave the reactionary enemies of the people's cause to put forward. The immediate and obvious result was the slaughter of thousands of brave and honest revolutionists at the hands of the respectable classes, the loss, in fact, of an army for the popular cause. But we may be sure that the results of the Commune will not stop there. To all socialists, that heroic attempt will give hope and ardour in the cause as long as it is to be won. We feel as though the Paris workmen had striven to bring the day dawn for us and had lifted us the sun's rim over the horizon, never to set in utter darkness again. Of such attempts one must say that, though those who perished in them might have been put in a better place in the battle, yet, after all, brave men never die for nothing when they die for principle. Let us shift from France to Germany before we get back to England again, and conclude with a few words about our hopes at the present day. To Germany we owe the school of economists at whose head stands the name of Karl Marx, who have made modern socialism what it is. The earlier socialist writers and preachers based their hopes on man being taught to see the desirableness of cooperation taking the place of competition, and adopting the change voluntarily and consciously and they trusted to schemes more or less artificial being tried and accepted, although such schemes were necessarily constructed out of the materials which capitalistic society offered. But the new school, starting with an historical view of what had been, and seeing that a law of evolution swayed all events in it, was able to point out to us that the evolution was still going on, and that whether socialism be desirable or not, it is at least inevitable. Here, then, was at last a hope of a different kind to any that had gone before it, and the German and Austrian workmen were not slow to learn the lesson founded on this theory. From being one of the most backward countries in Europe in the movement before Lasalle started his German Workmen's Party in 1863, Germany soon became the leader in it. Bismarck's repressive law has only acted on opinion there as the roller does to the growing grass, made it firmer and stronger. And whatever vicissitudes may be the fate of the party as a party, there can be no doubt that socialistic opinion is firmly established there, and that when the time is ripe for it, that opinion will express itself in action. Now in all I have been saying, I have been wanting you to trace the fact that, ever since the establishment of commercialism on the ruins of feudality, there has been growing a steady feeling on the part of the workers that they are a class dealt with as a class, and in like manner to deal with others. And that as this class feeling has grown, so also has grown with it, a consciousness of the antagonism between their class and the class which employs it, as the phrase goes, that is to say, which lives by means of its labour. Now it is just this growing consciousness of the fact that, as long as there exists in society a propertied class, living on the labour of a propertyless one, there must be a struggle always going on between those two classes. It is just the dawning knowledge of this fact which should show us what civilization can hope for, namely, transformation into true society, in which there will no longer be classes with their necessary struggle for existence and superiority. For the antagonism of classes which began in all simplicity between the master and the chattel slave of ancient society and was continued between the feudal lord and the serf of medieval society, has gradually become the contention between the capitalists developed from the workmen of the last named period and the wage earner. 
In the former struggle, the rise of the artisan and village tenant created a new class, the middle class, while the place of the old serf was filled by the propertyless labourer, with whom the middle class, which has absorbed the aristocracy, is now face to face. The struggle between the classes, therefore, is once again a simple one, as in the days of the classical peoples. But since there is no longer any strong race left out of civilization, as in the time of the disruption of Rome, the whole struggle in all its simplicity between those who have and those who lack is within civilization. Moreover, the capitalist or modern slave owner has been forced by his very success, as we have seen, to organize his slaves, the wage earners, into cooperation for production so well arranged that it requires little but his own elimination to make it a foundation for communal life. In the teeth also of the experience of past ages, he has been compelled to allow a modicum of education to the propertyless, and has not even been able to deprive them wholly of political rights. His own advance in wealth and power has bred for him the very enemy who is doomed to make an end of him. But will there be any new class to take the place of the present proletariat when that has triumphed, as it must do, over the present privileged class? We cannot foresee the future, but we may fairly hope not. At least we cannot see any signs of such a new class forming. It is impossible to see how destruction of privilege can stop short of absolute equality of condition. Pure communism is the logical deduction from the imperfect form of the new society, which is generally differentiated from it as socialism. Meantime, it is this simplicity and directness of the growing contest which above all things presents itself as a terror to the conservative instinct of the present day. Many among the middle class who are sincerely grieved and shocked at the condition of the proletariat which civilization has created, and even alarmed by the frightful inequalities which it fosters, do nevertheless shudder back from the idea of the class struggle and strive to shut their eyes to the fact that it is going on. They try to think that peace is not only possible but natural between the two classes, the very essence of whose existence is that each can only thrive by what it manages to force the other to yield to it. They propose to themselves the impossible problem of raising the inferior or exploited classes into a position in which they will cease to struggle against the superior classes, while the latter will not cease to exploit them. This absurd position drives them into the concoction of schemes for bettering the condition of the working classes at their own expense, some of them futile, some merely fantastic. Or they may be divided again into those which point out the advantages and pleasures of involuntary asceticism, and reactionary plans for importing the conditions of the production and life of the Middle Ages, wholly misunderstood by them, by the way, into the present system of the capitalist farmer, the great industries, and the universal world market. Some see a solution of the social problem in sham cooperation, which is merely an improved form of joint stockery. Others preach thrift to precarious incomes of 18 shillings a week, and industry to men killing themselves by inches in working overtime, or to men whom the labour market has rejected as not wanted. Others beg the proletarians not to breed so fast, an injunction the compliance with which might at first be of advantage to the proletarians themselves in their present condition, but would certainly undo the capitalists if it were carried to any lengths, and would lead through ruin and misery to the violent outbreak of the very revolution which these timid people are so anxious to forego. Then there are others who, looking back on the past, and perceiving that the workmen of the Middle Ages lived in more comfort and self-respect than ours do, 
even though they were subjected to the class rule of men who were looked on as another order of beings than they, think that if those conditions of life could be reproduced under our better political conditions, the question would be solved, for a time at least. Their schemes may be summed up in attempts, more or less preposterously futile, to graft a class of independent peasants on our system of wages and capital. They do not understand that this system of independent workmen, producing almost entirely for the consumption of themselves and their neighbours, and exploited by the upper classes by obvious taxes on their labour, which was not otherwise organised or interfered with by the exploiters, was what in the past times took the place of our system, in which the workers sell their labour in the competitive market to masters who have in their hands the whole organisation of the markets, and that these two systems are mutually destructive. Others again believe in the possibility of starting from our present workhouse system for the raising of the lowest part of the working population into a better condition, but do not trouble themselves as to the position of the workers who are fairly above the condition of pauperism, or consider what part they will play in the contest for a better livelihood. And lastly, quite a large number of well-intentioned persons belonging to the richer classes believe that in a society that compels competition for livelihood, and holds out to the workers as a stimulus to exertion the hope of their rising into a monopolist class of non-producers, it is yet possible to moralise capital, to use a slang phrase of the positivists. That is to say that a sentiment imported from a religion which looks upon another world as the true sphere of action for mankind will override the necessities of our daily life in this world. This curious hope is founded on the feeling that a sentiment antagonistic to the full development of commercialism exists and is gaining ground, and that this sentiment is an independent growth of the ethics of the present epoch. As a matter of fact, admitting its existence as I think we must do, it is the birth of the sense of insecurity which is the shadow cast before by the approaching dissolution of modern society founded on wage slavery. The greater part of these schemes aim, though seldom with the consciousness of their promoters, at the creation of a new middle class out of the wage-earning class and at their expense, just as the present middle class was developed out of the serf population of the early Middle Ages. It may be possible that such a further development of the middle class lies before us, but it will not be brought about by any such artificial means as the above-mentioned schemes. If it comes at all, it must be produced by events, which at present we cannot foresee, acting on our commercial system, and revivifying for a little time, maybe, that capitalist society which now seems sickening towards its end. For what is visible before us in these days is the competitive commercial system killing itself by its own force. Profits lessening, businesses growing bigger and bigger, the small employer of labour thrust out of his function, and the aggregation of capital increasing the numbers of the lower middle class from above rather than from below, by driving the smaller manufacturer into the position of a mere servant to the bigger. The productivity of labour also increasing out of all proportion to the capacity of the capitalists to manage the market or deal with the labour supply. Lack of employment, therefore, becoming chronic, and discontent therewithal. All this on the one hand. On the other, the workmen claiming everywhere political equality, which cannot long be denied, and education spreading, so that what between the improvement in the education of the working class and the continued amazing fatuity of that of the upper classes, there is a distinct tendency to equalisation here. 
And as I have hinted above, all history shows us what a danger to society may be, a class at once educated and socially degraded. Though indeed no history has shown us what is swiftly advancing upon us, a class which, though it shall have attained knowledge, shall lack utterly the refinement and self-respect which come from the union of knowledge with leisure and ease of life. The growth of such a class may well make the cultured people of today tremble. Whatever, therefore, of unforeseen and unconceived of may lie in the womb of the future, there is nothing visible before us but a decaying system, with no outlook but ever-increasing entanglement and blindness, and a new system, socialism, the hope of which is ever-growing clearer in men's minds, a system which not only sees how labour can be freed from its present fetters, and organised unwastefully so as to produce the greatest possible amount of wealth for the community and for every member of it, but which bears with it its own ethics and religion and aesthetics, that is, the hope and promise of a new and higher life in all ways. So that even if those unforeseen economical events above spoken of were to happen, and put off for a while the end of our capitalist system, the latter would drag itself along as an anomaly cursed by all, a mere clog on the aspirations of humanity. It is not likely that it will come to that, in all probability, the logical outcome of the latter days of capitalism will go step by step with its actual history. While all men, even its declared enemies, will be working to bring socialism about, the aims of those who have learned to believe in the certainty and beneficence of its advent will become clearer, their methods for realising it clearer also, and at last ready to hand. Then will come that open acknowledgement for the necessity of the change, an acknowledgement coming from the intelligence of civilization, which is commonly called revolution. It is no use prophesying as to the events which will accompany that revolution, but to a reasonable man it seems unlikely to the last degree, or we will say impossible, that a moral sentiment will induce the proprietary classes, those who live by owning the means of production which the unprivileged classes must needs use, to yield up this privilege uncompelled. All one can hope is that they will see the implicit threat of compulsion in the events of the day, and so yield with a good grace to the terrible necessity of forming a part of the world in which all, including themselves, will work honestly and live easily. End of section 6